Mina e kore e wai ka mate noa. If there is no water, there is no life. E nā iwi o te motu he mihi māhana tēnei ki a koutou katoa, ko Maraia Rakuraku tēnei. Welcome to Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand National's weekly delving into the Māori world. 25 years ago, an exhibition called Te Māori took Māori art to the world and in doing so showcased Māori arts and artefacts that up until then had only stood on tribal marae. Māori opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York on 10 September 1984, 25 years ago. It was described as striking, rightly impressive, tall, upstanding, upmarket one of a series of groundbreaking exhibitions, and to Māori proved to be all of these opinions and much more. We'll be bringing you highlights from the commemorative breakfast held last week. Al Gore did it with his documentary and Inconvenient Truth, and Henika Mako and Mike Smith aim to do it with theirs, here Al Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa. That is, inform Māori about the impact human contact is having on the natural world. If you've got and if you've got your own energy, say if you're off the grid and you've got some form of wind-generated or solar energy, just as a household, he rangatira koe. That's where your rangatira tanga is going to come practically, by having food security, by having water security and by having energy security. Hinekā Mako and Mike Smith warning us that climate change is real. They'll be on Te Ahikā a little later on. We're kicking off this week's Te car with Tama Parata and Wally Turvey, who take their work pretty seriously. They look after power for Honoeka Development Trust Limited. 25 minutes from central Wellington, heading north, is coastal settlement Plimerton, where the village of Honoeka is located. When you go into the Farikai of Honoeka Marae, there are photos that show a life shaped around the sea and its bounty. Behind the par and what was the former quarry, a new business aquaculture venture has been shaping up between NIWA, the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, and Honoweka Development Trust. Aquaculture involves farming freshwater and saltwater organisms, and the word is that the high capital costs and long-term profit realisation is a deterrent to Māori, which hasn't stopped the Nasi Tuarangatira crew from giving it a go. So in what looks like a bunker in the old quarry, Honoweka Development Trust has recreated an environment that insists power growth all with the aim of developing economically sustainable systems and ideally making aquaculture more accessible to Māori. Tama Parata and Wally Turvey manage the day-to-day operations of the farm. I'm Tama Parata, um, from Levin actually, but I'm been away in Australia the last 40 years. After the uh, water's pumped in from the ocean to here, there is a certain amount, the tank outside holds about 50,000 litres and there's about 15,000 litres being pumped through the system as we speak. It goes up through the systems, through the uh, power trays, there's 36 trays in there. There's about 30,000 powers in there now. And it's a recycled system, so it's pumped up through there and then it comes back via this heavy grey pipeline here. 
enters into the first tank here, which is called a swirl separator. Now, what the swirl separator does, separates the heavy stuff uh, from the purer water. The refined water, I'll, I'll say refined water, it then moves into what is the next tank, which is called the settling tank. And that settling tank virtually does the same job as the swirl separator. It settles all the heavy stuff on the bottom. From the settling tank, it then enters a biofilter via that pipeline there on the bottom there. Now, what the biofilter does, it's, it's, it's got a, thousands and thousands of plastic little beads in there. And on those beads are the um, microbes, if you like, if I can put it that way. Wally will just show you. Grab a handful of oil. So this is a um, open filter. tank that yeah. looks like it has bubbles on the top it's of it. Of those thousands and thousands of those beads. On those right. beads are the microbes. The job yeah. of the microbes is to get rid of the ammonia. Where does the ammonia come from? It comes from the power. That's their job. So these kind of look like plastic corrugated things. It changes the ammonia into nitrite and then into nitrate. Which is least harmful to the power. So Beautiful. Um, that water then comes back into the sump. And from the sump, it's pumped back up to the system again. Oh. It's a recycle. Wow. However, on this side over here, from the settling tank, it is pumped through protein skimmers. Those two large upright pipes there are called protein skimmers. What is the function of a protein skimmer? The function is the same function as the biofilter, to get rid of the ammonia in the system, only by using a different method. So it goes through a two-phase system? Yes, it does. And the water runoff from the protein skimmers, as you can see through there, into those two tanks there, feeds the uh, cutting oil, which is uh, a type of seaweed. So where's the cutting oil? It's in the tank. Really? Go and have a look. Anyway, this, this is the cutting oil, which the Maoris relish. You can actually eat this now. That water's good enough to eat now. Um, in about a month, this whole tank should be full of cutting oil, ready to harvest. So we harvest that within a month, leave some still in there, and another month we'll harvest it again, so on. So, so by on. harvesting, do you mean collecting it collecting, and putting it in there? Collecting it. Right. And processing it. And then where do you store it after you've well, finished? The, 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 the runoff water from here is again pure, and that runs this pipeline here back into the sump, from yeah. the sump back up in the system again. Wow. So it's all recycled, reused, Recycle. regenerated. Now this whole uh, marine system is uh, comes from Niwa. They set the whole thing up. Wally and I put everything in um, according to their plan, you see. Yeah. 
So you and Wally come down here every day? Is this a full-time Daily. job? Daily. Oh, just about, yeah. Daily. Daily. It is Daily a full-time job because the, uh, the powers in there need to be monitored daily. <laughs> so are you two, were you two familiar with all the scientific process when it first started? No. We did a course with course. Niwa and then we did uh, work experience with them weekly with Niwa which is very interesting actually. It's pretty neat isn't it? Oh, uh, amazing. Uh, my, yes, yeah. my own is, uh, I've been an abalone diver in Australia that, that was my... Uh, is that the flesh word for power? <laughs> Actually, Ablone is the uh, is the commercial name for well, it is a species of power. Heliotis, you know? Cyrus, and all that carry on. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Ablone is uh, a commercial name. Power is, of course, Maori in New Zealand. It's a different colour too over there in Australia. Okay. Yes, bigger. The meat is white. I call them green up over there because around the edge I got a little it's all greeny. So you and Tama have been managing this whole project, you know, built yep. it from scratch. What sort of interests have you found the young people have had? Um, just curiosity to start with and uh, seems to have uh, eased off quite a bit since we got uh, first established. But, um, I'm assuming living so close to the marae there, um, whoever lives in the kainga and the surrounding yeah. houses would be coming in to give you fellas a hand when you were building. Oh, yeah, yeah. So all that kind of manakatanga was going on. Yeah. But what about in terms of, because uh, Phil was talking about the sustainability of the actual project, right? Yeah. And I guess establishing it here on a, on a papakainga, there's, you know, you're going to need the people. But eventually, in terms of sustainability, yeah. you need the, another generation of people yeah. coming in and having an interest. Is um, that happening? Uh, we're, we're hoping to promote that sort of um, feedback, but um, haven't had uh, much luck at the beginning sort of thing. Because uh, we could be looking at eventually some kind of full-term employment, eh? Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. Because, I mean, this is an industry that we're yep. potentially looking at here. A marae-based one. Yep. Or a, and a Māori-generated one. Yeah, it would be good. Yeah, it'd be choice. I mean, that's another kind of sustainability, eh? Yeah. So what are you about I'm, to do? I'm just about to feed the power some kai. And what is that? Uh, this is uh, a wheat-based um, food. I don't know what else is in it, but it's wheat-based anyway. Have you had a taste? And um, we feed them every second day. Okay. Ideally in the evening, because they feed at night. Ah. Uh, I just... Feed each tray 100 grams of this. And you come back tomorrow, yeah. that problem's all gone. Wow. Now, I wanted to ask, what, how old are they when you remove them? Those are uh, market size now. Okay. Uh, half that size is market size as well. Really? Yeah, they're called cocktail, cocktail abalone. Oh. It's too tiny. 
That's because you are not a power. <laughs> to, to a power, they're saying, I can hear them now, they're saying, come on boys, party's on. <laughs> I reckon if you feed them seaweed, they change colour. Yes, they do. If you feed them cutting more, they'll go darker. The colour is associated, associated with what food they're eating. Okay. So if they were in the sea, what would they be, what would they be eating normally? They'll be much darker than that, and uh, because they live on purely seaweed, okay. they'll be darker. Now, see that shiny bit? Yes. You'll notice the shiny bit on the end of there. That's because of the uh, pH level. Wow. The lack of pH. Water the, is water, or practically anything, is either too acid or too alkaline. It's, that's being too acid. And it's eating away at the shell. That's why it's shiny. Exactly. And then if it's dull, it means it's too alkaline? Which the power like. Right. A power is on the alkaline side of the pH. Around about uh, 7.8 to 8.2. So what do you do in order to balance the alkaline We put chemicals in the water daily, daily, twice a day even, morning and one at night. So you two, you and Wally, are constantly monitoring Yes, exactly. And do you record it down? That's our, yes, everything's recorded. This food is recorded. The question is, how do I know how much food I've put in there? Easy. There's 100 grams in there, and that's what I feed them. It, it becomes interesting as you get into it. It's it like, is interesting. It's like any hobby, once you get into it and start studying it, man, it's interesting. You know, you become addicted to it. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you still eat them? Oh, yeah, my, I'm about to have them. I some. <laughs> I just can't gonna... wait. I'm dribbling already. <laughs> <laughs> now, I um, asked Wally this question. So when we were out there, Phil was talking about how this is, you know, this is about sustainability, right? This whole system. Now, the question I've got is, okay, that, that, that's true, but I guess the system's only as sustainable as the people that will be doing yours and Wally's job and we, what sort of response is that? We've already broached that question. Um, they're going to get students to come here that want to do a degree in aquaculture and they can come here and um, while they do their studies here they can look after them as well as. Tamaparata and Wally Turvey describing their work at Honoweka Development Trust at our website radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. You can get additional information about their trust. And while there, why not listen to past programs or subscribe to our weekly newsletter? I'm Mariah Rakuraku and this is Te Ahika. Stand up right. Stand up right. 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 Right
From the moon to the alley to the deep blue sea The word is heard is N-A-T-I-V-E We don't get our take much delight Like a hundred thousand more we when they hold in the mic For me, one of the more disturbing images I saw recently was of a starving polar bear after being in hibernation, looking for Kai, scrambling onto ice surrounded by water. Now this reflects the reality facing many animals who are dependent on seasonal weather, but more so the destructive impact humans are having on the natural world. We've all heard it, oceans are getting warmer, don't drive your car, ride bikes, use energy-efficient light bulbs. Sometimes being in New Zealand, we can tend to think we're removed from global events that impact on the environment. Not so, according to scientists. Dr Charlotte Severn, James Rennick and Eric Brenstrom all featured in the documentary He Ao Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa, made by Henika Mako and Mike Smith. They're first up explaining what climate change is before we hear from Henika Mako and Mike Smith. I'm Eric Brenstrom, a severe weather forecaster with Met Service in Wellington. I'm Dr James Renwick and I'm in the Climate Variability and Change Group at NIWA. Okay, so you both make appearances in the documentary here, Ao Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa. Just how serious a problem is climate change? Well, it's terrifically serious. I think it's the biggest issue facing humanity, well, for this century and probably for all time since civilization really got started. I'd agree with James there. I noted with interest that a spokesman for the British government said this was as serious as the First World War and the Second World War all rolled in together. OK, so why is it so serious? Well, climate change, I guess, affects everybody. and It really affects our, our way of life as um, <clears throat> a species, if you like. Humanity's got very used, or humanity's developed in a time when the climate's been pretty much stable, sea levels have been fairly constant and so on. And there are a lot of people in the world now and we've become very dependent on food production in certain places and global trade and so on. And climate change really changes or affects everything. Changes where food will be grown, um, affects where people can live because sea level rise, um, you know, there's a large number of people, a large fraction of the global population lives very near the coast, so there's going to have to be um, changes, a lot of disruption there. And the reason for climate change, the burning of fossil fuels, is... It's us. Is us, and it's at the basis of most economies. So there have to be big changes. We're looking at the possibility that the global average temperature could go up two or three degrees by the end of the century. Now, to put that in perspective, the change from the height of the last ice age, when so much water was tied up in ice caps that the sea level was 120 metres lower than it is today, the change from that time until now is only about five degrees in terms of global average temperature. So if we do warm by between two or three degrees centigrade by the end of the century, we will have reached a situation that human agriculture has never experienced before not to mention the problems due to sea level rise, which people are now saying could be more than a metre by the end of the century, and that affects an enormous number of very big cities right around the world. The reality is, though, that we're responsible for this. Absolutely. But that also means that we have the solution in our hands, really. I mean, the, 
industry and transportation, which has developed in the last hundred years or so, is largely responsible for a lot of the issue. Which people see as progress. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I drive a car and all the rest of it. Of course, it is progress. And the thing is, we have the technological means or the the nous to move in a slightly different direction. I mean, this is all developed fairly quickly. And I think if we really set our minds to it, we can steer things away from the direction we're going right now. So it's a big challenge, but I'm optimistic that we have the ability to do the right thing and move away from that high-carbon economy towards something that's a bit more sustainable. The achievements of human technology in the last couple of centuries have been absolutely phenomenal. But what we need to do now is to focus critically on reducing our use of coal, petrol, uh, gas and look at ways, if we can, to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But also we have to be mindful that some change is inevitable and now is not the right time to be building expensive things down at sea level, for example. We have to change our behaviour in anticipation of what will happen in the next few decades. So how does New Zealand stack up internationally? Well, in some ways, in terms of the effects of climate change, um, we're looking okay because we're surrounded by oceans and the Southern Ocean is warming probably slowest of just about anywhere in the world. So the rate of change in New Zealand will probably be less than a lot of places. So that's the good news. Um, the not so good news is that in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions, per head of population, um, we're right up there with some of the biggest polluters in the world. Um, New Zealand is a small country population wise, so the total amount of greenhouse gas that we emit is not large by world standards, but it's it's very much a, a, a personal thing, you know. Everybody needs to do their bit. Four million people in New Zealand, you can divide the world up into a whole bunch of groups of four million people. All of those groups need to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, and we've really not pulled our weight in that department at all yet, and we need to make some big moves in that direction. The solution to this is going to require all of the countries of the world to cooperate and make changes in the way they do things. We can't get into a squabble between one country saying we're doing this and you're doing that. We don't have time for that sort of infighting. So on a local level, what would you encourage an average New Zealander to do? Well, I think there are some easy things to do that do make a difference or move us in the right direction. Uh, all the obvious stuff like the energy-efficient light bulbs, um, using public transport more or driving less... Um, or if you have the ability to change your car to something that's more fuel-efficient and hybrid and so on, great stuff. Um, and just be more mindful about energy use. Insulation's a big one. Most houses in New Zealand are not well insulated. If you're able to change that and put in insulation, that will make a big difference to your energy consumption. And if we can all reduce on that basis, then that's, that's really good. Uh, one other thing I would say is political action's really important. We need... Um, strong political leadership in this area and there are some good signs out there now but I think talking to your MP and you know just, just community action generally is um, something we really need to see a lot of Yeah I'd go along completely with James on that it is important to let politicians know that we take this issue seriously and we want to see changes Eric Brenstrom of the Met Service and Dr James Rennick, Science Leader, Climate Variability and Change at NIWA, the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research.
So how does this affect Māori? Well, in quite an obvious way, actually, especially as many iwi use post-treaty settlement monies to invest in primary sectors of the economy, like forestry and fishing. Now here I put my very naive school C science into play. So, extra CO2 carbon dioxide being pumped into the atmosphere by human activities is causing global temperatures to rise. One of the consequences of this is rising sea levels, both as a result of warmer air temperatures causing ice sheets to melt and as a result of the ocean itself warming, and put simply, warmer water takes up more space than cold water, and the only place for it to go is up. An independent consequence of increasing CO2 levels is increased ocean acidification. Increased ocean acidification makes it harder for, say, shellfish, who need calcium to make their shells, to, well, make their shells. And if Māori are pouring all their investment into mussel and pawa farms, that is, into a resource that could conceivably disappear, if we don't reduce our CO2 levels, this could potentially be disastrous economically for Māori. Māori and coastal areas are affected because of the sea level rise but also because of changing weather patterns and we're seeing increasingly bad events, um, a higher number of those sorts of events and we get a lot of surge and so with that surge we get large waves that come and inundate in those areas where people are. Chief Scientist at Niwa, the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research Tuwhare Dr. Charlotte Savoon also appears in the documentary. Here, Al Weta, climate change in Aotearoa, alongside Eric Brinstrom and Dr. James Rennick. The acidification issue is about really the ability of our oceans to absorb carbon dioxide. They've reached pretty much their maximum limit. The Southern Ocean, in particular, uh, cannot absorb any more. And so what we're seeing is the, the result of that is that they're becoming more acidic. The effect on our fisheries, especially those food webs that underpin our fisheries, is that the calcifying organisms become stressed. Now, the, the oceans have been acidic before. We've seen this in, in past geological history. And, and, and species do survive. But you have a change in, in, in food webs and you have a change in support and collapse of food webs. And Māori are, are, are in the primary sector. We, have, we, large, we own a large portion of, of New Zealand's fisheries. And so we've got to consider this in planning out to the future. We've got to look at ecosystems type of modelling and management in order to get a handle on what's going to happen. Is this a good investment for us into the future? Um, for our, our other primary sectors that we invest in, which is forestry, farming and horticulture, there are implications as well. We see drier regions on the east, uh, we see like, increasing uh, inclement weather, uh, a lot of our lands are actually up in tiger country, you know, very steep, category 5, 6 type properties and, and you know, they're going to be heavily eroded with this increase in, 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 in rainfall and erosion. And that, um, and that really is, there's got to be a, a, a decent impact assessment really on what the impacts of climate change are going to be on our people and our communities and our economy. People have attempted it, but I think there's, there's real numbers to be looked at now. Water availability is key for us because we, we do rely on the primary sector. We are in the primary sector. Our assets are largely based around the primary sector, and that's our economy.
I'm Maria Rakraku, this is Te Ahika, and I'm talking with Mike Smith and Heneka Mako about their documentary, Climate Change in Aotearoa, He Ao Wera. Tēnā koutou katoa, uh, ko Mike Smith ahau, um, te tāua tōku papa no, no Ngāpuhi, uh, te tāua tōku mama uh, no konei anō, engari he wahine e pākea. Kia ora, ko Heneka tōku ingoa, no Taranaki, no Whanganui. For 18 months, Mike Smith and Henika Mako travelled in their red bus around the east and west coast of the North Island, documenting Māori responses to their natural environment, or rather changes in the environment. The result is a documentary, He Ao Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa. 18 months is a long time to spend on the road, eh? Um, yeah, well, it was 18 months on the road, um, but that's how long it took to, to, to make the documentary. We travelled from the far north uh, down to the bottom of the North Island and traversed the country uh, east to west. But that was because we wanted to get a um, uh, a sample of um, experiences, Māori observations uh, from around the country because climate change is going to affect um, uh, going to affect this country in different ways. It's, the effects in the north are going to be different from the effects in the south and the effects in the west are going to be different from the effects in the east. So we we did need to take our time to travel around to canvas uh, that wide spectrum um, of effects that climate change is going to have. So initially you went around for three months? Um, probably a little longer and um, sometimes where we went was triggered by what we had heard about um, a particular environment, for instance, Bridge Par, we were watching Native Affairs, I think, and we thought, oh, That's Bridge Par just out of Hastings. Aye, on the East Coast. We can't believe these people have been living in a community without running water. Kore mm. um, No water in the creek, no water in the taps. It was just dry, and so we went there motivated by um, hearing that news. So um, we hadn't planned to go there, specifically, but we ended up travelling down for a couple of days and spoke with people in that community about that take. And you document uh, one of the responses from one of the whānau there who said that the they have to ship their water in to their pa in their community. That's right. There were two big trailers like that were sort of on the back of a truck, obviously, with big tanks and... Um, some of the whānau were um, happy to go down with buckets and containers and fill up their water maybe daily, and others uh, just went to the shop to buy buy water for the for the house for the for the day for the week. I'm not sure how long you would, could go to town to buy containered water, but um, the tanks were pretty big on the back of a large trailer, and they were at the Tumarai in Bridge Park. Yeah, that's not necessarily unusual for rural communities. Um, you know, don't have town supply water to run out of water in the summer. But what was very, what was really unusual about that situation is that they'd been out of water for six months, and that's a community of some ninety um, homes, Komato, young people. There's Morai there. There's Kohangareo, and they'd had no running water in their houses for over six months when we were there. But that's that's something like twenty minutes away from Hastings. Yeah, yes, it is. But the uh, town supply doesn't extend as far as as, far as Bridge Pass, so they're they're relying on the aquifers, and the, you know the aquifers are like big underground lakes, and um, and you you tap into them by way of bores. 
But unfortunately for the people there, uh, the grape growing industry had had come to their region, and the each grape um, each grape plant sucks up five liters of water a day, and some of these farms have got you know like thirty thousand um, plants sucking up five liters of water a day, and um, as you see in the film. We drove down the main road there with our cameras going, and we filmed. We could have filmed for ten miles and miles minutes, of just vineyards, miles and mm. miles of vineyards, sucking up the water. So, so there's a competition on for water in the area, and the local Tangata Whenua, the local hapu there, are losing, um, are losing that battle. And as a result, yeah, they have no running water. It's like a, it's almost like a third world situation. You'd almost expect Judy Bailey to come on TV and and uh, put out an appeal for funds for the you know for the water-starved natives of um, you know of the East Coast. That's just you know, it's unbelievable. But what is such a necessity of life? I mean, we need water, and I guess we take it for granted here in Aotearoa that it's so readily available. Well, in fact, um, just last night we had um, Tahu Portiki saying that in Dunedin they had only had an inch of rain. Through the winter, if I'm correct with it. Yeah, it's sort of astounding <laughs> when you think of the Waipounama, you always think of lots of mountainous, uh, wet country, but um, not so anymore. And that's one of the effects of climate change, you know, is the extreme um, weather conditions where it's going to go from extreme droughts and it's going to oscillate between extreme droughts and extreme, weather, uh, ext- extreme floods. And so the weather's just going to become a lot more extreme on both ends of the scale. And so um, and so, and so droughts is part of that. And I think we saw that quite recently in the Waikato and Taranaki. It wasn't last summer, it was the summer before, where there was you know, a catastrophic drought that came through there. And while that's not unusual in our, in our weather cycles, every once in a while you know, we'll get a drought, what climate change is going to uh, mean is that the, um, those, events are, those events are going to be a lot um, they're going to be a lot more uh, rapid, and so there's going to be lots more droughts, and they're going to, the gaps between the droughts are going to be shorter. So we might end up with having maybe two or three years of drought, you know, in a row perhaps. And um, the effects of that are, could be quite catastrophic when you consider that uh, most of our energy comes from hydro uh, power. And uh, you know, your listeners would be probably aware. Every summer, you look, you see that classic uh, news story on the six o'clock news, where the um, hydrologists are saying things like, "Well, you know, we're running out of water in the dams, and and unless we get some rain over the next two or three weeks, there's going to be power shortages in Auckland and in the North Island." And so, and that's, I mean, we have um, we have situations like that now. So just imagine what it's going to be like, maybe five or ten years down the track, when those events are becoming um, more and more common. And I guess that's why the government's trying to uh, invest uh, more money and the power companies are trying to uh, invest more money in wind-generated power. And you see all the big wind farms being talked about and um, because they know the writing's on the wall. And unless um, we do something very, very soon, chances are the power could be going out in some of the major cities in the North Island. Also a line of thought that says that, you know, all of this stuff is conspiracy. Yeah, well, that is that line of thought is the conspiracy. You know, um... Uh, I think it's, you know, when you look at what's happening around the, around the world, um, world governments are really dragging the chain in terms of responding to to the emissions. They're dragging the chain, or uh, they're not they're not reacting fast enough to um, put into policies to deal with climate change. And why is this? They know the scientists have told them, but there's some huge vested interests, commu- um, business interests 
you know that um, that those types of changes are going to have a have a marked effect on the profitability of big business. And so big business is putting a lot of pressure on world governments. I mean, the vineyards is just one example, isn't it? Absolutely, yep. Yes, I mean, our country's um, food production is probably one of our highest income earners and a lot of the food producing industries are reluctant to sort of adapt as quickly as we, we need to. We need, we need to change, um, but they're very reluctant because we've been doing the same thing for how many years? And um, something interestingly that I, that I heard one of the scientists talk about was the research being done into um, the food or that stock each, like having enzymes or something included with their kai so that perhaps when they burp, which is a cause of a lot of methane emissions, that it's not so hard uh, or doesn't have the chemicals that are affecting the environment in the same way that they do now. And I was astounded and I thought there's all this research and work being done, but um, policy making still seems to be quite slow to, to make effective change quickly, um, which I think is just a natural part of the <laughs> process but it's um, it's the inevitability of this uh, which is evidence in in recent years like there's no doubt it's been hotter globally but but specifically in New Zealand the last 10 years are the hottest years on record you cannot deny that the meteorologists you know they measure the temperature and every year it's getting hotter and the effects of that are droughts for example but also the floods the only warning that we got was my daughter running out of her bedroom holding her newborn baby with her and crying telling me that the water was coming into her room it hit them quite hard they were um uh, you know they were in tears they were crying because the bedroom was getting full of water anything could have happened the power came through the house everything was still on the power hadn't gone off we were running around trying to lift things trying to save what we could save so we grabbed what we could chucked it in rubbish bags held our kids above our heads and made our way down the street to the saddlery, which was our saviour. We were looking at our neighbours that living in business across the street. Um, she was being carried out of her building by uh, people who were trying to help her, um, local people, fire brigade, who were um, walking around making sure all those people that they could get to were OK, which they weren't. Even the waist-height places, you couldn't walk through it because of the danger of being swept away. I was walking around in my knees, and even it was difficult to walk around then because of the push of it coming down through the catchment. Then you have the outer reaches like Matangaro, Pupuki, all over those areas was exactly the same. There was rivers through those, um, those areas. We had marae that were devastated, Matangaro. Um, we had homes in Pupuki that were devastated uh, due to the creek coming, going through there. 99 days after the flood, we had completed our part of the clean-up in our whare, which was uh, replacing floors, replacing walls, uh, replacing uh, furniture, everything that we could replace. The day before, we were getting ready to move back into our home. And as we were getting ready to move in, our local constable again, the siren went off. And he said, Bryce, I wouldn't advise that you move back in just yet because there's another 120 mils of rain coming tonight. After the first flood, yeah, we just soldiered on, you know. I was uh, not too, too, too fussed as long as my kids were fine and 
and that, yeah, I just soldiered on. But after the second flood, I want it out of here, you know. Um, how it affects you in your mind, it's just like how, how can you... You've been through it once, you never want to go through it again, then you go through it 100 days later. Who did it surprise? It surprised everybody. Catastrophic floods that we've been having in some areas and there's you're, you're storms. You're talking in particular about up, up in the north and In the north, and uh, the Manawatu, Whangaihu. Um, fielding, fielding way. Yeah. Wellington here in Wellington. There's a phenomenal um, recent tornadoes coming through Taranaki, uh, ripping the roofs off big buildings like placemakers. That's a... You know, so houses are affected, of course, trees get knocked over, power lines get affected. And just to have the word tornado entering our vernacular, I mean, this is old there all. We have never tornadoes you see in movies. Twister. Yeah. Not here in Aotearoa. Aye. But um, recently when we were passing through um, at one of the um, mahinga of some of my whānau, they were like, we have a tornado policy now <laughs> to make sure everyone's safe. If, you know, there's a warning, it's like, OK, we know what to do. Whereas five years ago, ten years ago, oh, you know, we didn't even, we didn't talk about tornadoes. So um, for people who are like, oh, climate change, is, it's, I think it's the fear because of the impacts are so wide-ranging. It affects, you know, water, it affects kai, it affects... Everything you can think of. It's the interconnectedness of things, Nera. Totato Alkatsu. Hi. I'm Mariah Rakraku. This is Tehika, and I'm talking with Mike Smith and Hineka Mako about their documentary, Climate Change in Aotearoa, He Ao Wera. So, at grassroots level, which is where you two were going, you know, when you're going around the Mutu, I mean, are you finding that our people are, are more. Uh, are right on the pulse. This is happening in their backyard, and they're more, you know, they're politicised around the the issues of climate change. Um, to a certain degree, I think there's been a lot more media coverage about environmental issues, and particularly climate change. Um, even over the last eighteen months since we started this project, when we when, when we first were um, conceptualising it, um, there wasn't a great level of understanding about the issues. But I'd say in the last 18 months, there's been a lot of talk, there's been a lot of programs, there's been a lot of documentaries on television and stuff. But um, sometimes it's a case of joining the dots. You know, people are observing changes and they're saying, gee, you know, the Manuka's blooming early this year. Mm. Um, or know, the Putukawa is blooming late. Or the Putukawa's blooming late. And people mm. are observing the changes and uh, wondering why that is, but not necessarily making the connections. Or they might not be noticing, um, like, there's not so many seagulls on the beach, you know, like, uh, what's happened to all the um, marine life? And uh, they're not make, making the links between those things and, and climate change. What are the causative effects of some of the changes that they're observing? But our people are astute observers of nature, particularly the people in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. You know, um, scientists have these things called longitudinal studies, you know, where they study things over a period of time. You know, they might study something for five, six, ten years. But, of course, you know, our people have had longitudinal studies on the environment that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years and a whole body of knowledge built up around those. And uh, and so, you know, um, yeah, so our people are astute observers of change. Me haere ki te kōrero ki e tehi no te ropu hua parakore o te taitokero. 
Taitokirai Organic Producers. We started the organisation in the early 1990s. It was a group of people that got together that saw the the chemicals that were being pumped into our whenua, basically. How sick our people were getting, how sick the land was looking, and they wanted that to change. They also noticed that there weren't as many gardens that our people were doing anymore. I mean, people always called it all about times of their nannies going in and helping them in the gardens, and they had huge gardens. Every marae had a garden. It's about sharing the knowledge that our tūpuna have to make sure that it's not lost. We talked about the reo being lost 20, 40 years ago, and we had the kōhunga movement start up to stop that. Well, I believe with our huaparakore movement, which is the organic movement, that we get that knowledge and retain that knowledge to save it for future generations. So a lot of the people that we interviewed in the course of the film uh, were people who had noticed those changes. Uh, one of the people you spoke to was from Ahipara and he was talking about Tohirua and Tuatua. You know, for anyone that I know from that's from up north, they're always talking about Tohirua and Tuatua. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the stocks are being depleted. Yeah. I mean, so it's highly likely that in, in a lifetime, all of that knowledge can end up becoming moving into myth. Yep. No? The whole area is a huge significance to us, and, uh, and to see the deterioration that's happened over the years, it's, a, it's quite a sad thing. The amount of um, sea that's come up over the years, actually just recent years, actually, even Te Atohe, the amount of coastline that's been pushed back there used to be all sand dunes all along the whole beach. Now it's just a huge bank. And uh, one storm, I think it was last year, we had a huge, we had a huge swell. We had gale force uh, northwest winds, and it just pushed everything back over the over the road into the houses. From that storm on, it's left the Te Onero Atohe a completely different place. Our tour tour beds have. have uh, receded, they've, they've gone away, they're quite hard to find at the moment. Tohero have actually disappeared. It's affected them over in uh, Teneke there, whereas people are all trying to sell their houses on the beachfront there, and they, there's that much backup over the sewage systems and whatnot now that it's affecting the other side there over in uh, Teneke. With the last few storms that we've had in the last couple of years, the big uh, retaining walls have actually been moved and pushed out onto the main road itself and uh, and the tide's actually gone through, gone across onto the lawns of other houses. I think it's just the rise of the, 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 the seas now and uh, the global um, warming air that's that's occurred over the years too now. It's it's starting to it's starting to kick us in the butt now. Just one of the characters featured in a documentary made by Henika Mako and Mike Smith called He Ao Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa. That was part one of an interview. The next parts will be rolling out over the next couple of weeks. But head to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, and you can see some information about the documentary He Ao Wera, Climate Change in Aotearoa. Mike Smith and Onati Wai with an explanation of this week's Fakatoki, voiced at the beginning of the program by Hineka Mako. E kore wai, 
come out them law. So if you don't have water, basically you're dead. And it doesn't matter how much land that you got, if you haven't got water, it's just dust, you can't grow anything. And, and so water is, you know, taonga tino nui. So, yes, we've got to all get together, we've got to protect our water. And more importantly, we've got to realise that there's a gold rush going on for water at the moment, water allocation rights, because uh, horticulturists and, and uh, farmers and people, they know that, that water is the key. And so there's a lolly scramble going on. There's a real competition on at the moment for water. And, uh, and unless our people know about that, I'm scared that they're going to miss out. So, uh, yep, everybody... Protect your water. It's probably one of the most greatest resources that we have. It's been 25 years since Te Māori exhibited in America, and we close this week's programme with highlights from the commemorative breakfast held last week at Waifetsu Marae. Speakers featured are Piti Shasha, Graham Smith and Peter Sharples. Ko taia no mātou ki te mutinga te ahikā, he mihi atu tēnei ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki nga hoa mahi, nga mihi ki a koutou. Hoki mai anō e tewi a te rawiki, mai te ahikā ki a tātou katoa, Māori ora. Reflections on Te Māori. Te Māori opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York on 10 September 1984, 25 years ago. It was described as striking, rightly impressive, tall, upstanding, upmarked, one of a series of ground-raising exhibitions and Te Māori proved to be all of these opinions and much more. <coughs> After New York, Te Māori went on to St. Louis, San Francisco and Chicago, and on its hooking on my face was exhibited at Wellington Christchurch, Dunedin in Auckland. A large number of people became involved in Te Māori. Many were uplifted in spirit, many experienced a life-changing crisis of a positive nature, and many became proud of being Māori or being Kiwi or New Zealander. Many rediscovered themselves as the Māori sparked something that was already present in them and this applied to both Māori and Pākehā. Many of our elders uh, who went overseas to support the Māori saw the big wide world for the first time in their lives. It was an unforgettable experience for them. Over the 25 years since the opening, many of the elders have gone. They are no longer with us. You will see them in the videos being shown today. They played their part, helped to build a lasting legacy we call Tamari, gave it mana, gave it legitimacy, and gave us something to remember today. We pause to remember them. I don't know if Universal Studios Universal Studios, aye. You know that they tahi mutaka e kōrero Māori ana. Kei te hea tēnā kōrero. Kei te tika tahi nā re tānai tēnā. Ko tōna ingoa kō kete. Night Rider. Tōna ingoa kō kete. Mena ka kōrero Māori koe ki te mutaka. Māne e whakahuki kōrero kia. Kei te hea tēnā kōrero. Kata mai mātau i te rumā. Universal 
So we had to wait our turn because there was a big queue of people talking to this car, you see. And I got tired to walk up to the Kidera. Good morning, Chao. How are you today? Ah, Ha <laughs> 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 